back. Welcome to Cinephile. My name is Adnan Farouk. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. To all the old fans who are still with us, welcome back. And to all the new fans, welcome aboard. I begin by thanking all those from the previous iteration, including Pete Genesini, who greenlit Cinephile, Rick Passmore, Claire Atkins, my man Ben Lyons, our talent producers like Carlton Gillespie, and of course, the everyman Dan Stanzik who made this whole thing happen. And now my new crew, Chris Corcoran, Rich Cook, formerly from ESPN. He's our executive producer, Sage Milgram and Hillary doing a fantastic job in terms of marketing and all elements of production. We got Bob and continuing the trend of producers with very difficult to spell last names, Joe Engelbrecht is the mastermind behind all of this. To let you know what Cinephile is, it started in May of 2016. I'm a lifelong movie lover and cinephile and having worked for nine years at ESPN, I felt that everybody and their grandmother had a podcast, so perhaps I could join that mix, and PG gave us the green light, me and Stanzik, and away we went. And thanks to Ben Lyons, I was able to cover the Academy Awards twice, which is an absolute career highlight, crowning achievement. We actually won an Emmy Award for our coverage of the Oscars the year that, yes, Moonlight won Best Picture. Some of the guests that we've had in the past, one of my favorite comedians, Richard Lewis, uh, Margot Robbie, the Academy Award-winning director, Barry Jenkins, Mahershala Ali, two-time Academy Award winner, Billy Bob Thornton, Academy Award winner, Vigo Mortensen Academy Award nominee and one of my favorite actors of all time, the great Robert De Niro. You can check out previous episodes of Cinephile to listen to all of those. And the good news is Carlton is back in the mix, my talent booker extraordinaire. So he's going to get us great guests right out of the gate. Who do we got? We got Adam Driver and Chloe Seventy. They are the stars of the Jim Jarmusch zombie film, The Dead Don't Die. You'll hear that interview coming up. We'll talk to both of them, not only about the zombie film, but other works. Chloe's work in Boys Don't Cry, 20th anniversary of that Hillary Swank film. And of course, I talked to Adam Driver, but the great Scorsese film, Silence, and uh, Star Wars, and of course, Black Klansman. As always, check us out, Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review. This is important because now it's a new venture here at Cadence 13, so I need all of your help. Please do subscribe, rate, review. And spread the word. We're going to talk not only about current releases and what's happened in the last four and a half months, but also a recap a little bit at a time of The Sopranos, which is the 20th anniversary of that landmark television show. Plus, we're going to do Mount Rushmore's, and this week our topic for Mount Rushmore is sports movies. But let's get right to it. The Oscars were a while ago, but I just want to give my quick thoughts on what happened. I thought no host worked in terms of brevity. The show worked out well. The worst loss line had to be my man Paul Schrader. I was praying he would win for Best Original Screenplay for First Reform, an incredible film one of the best films of his career. Instead, he loses Best Original Screenplay for Green Book to Brian Hayes, Curry, Peter Farrelly, and Nick Vallelonga. The best win of the night. By the way, Schrader, when asked about it, chuckled, you can't compete with mediocrity. Great line from the always gruff and honest Schrader. The best win of the night, of course, was Spike Lee winning for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, He and his collaborators, the fact he leapt into Sam Jackson's arms and, of course, gave a very memorable speech. I don't think Black Clansman is one of the best films necessarily of Spike's career, but it's his best film in a long time, and I'm happy Happy to finally see the Academy rewarding him for a guy who's made such incredible films like Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, and many others. The most nauseating moment of the night had to be this, Bohemian Rhapsody winning more Academy Awards than the original Godfather. Yes, you heard that right. The original Godfather in 1972 won three Oscars, of course, major categories, in terms of Best Picture and Best Actor, Marlon Brando, and the four that Bohemian Rhapsody wins, not only for Best Actor, Ami Malek, but also Best Film Editing, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing. That's right, a perfectly forgettable musical biopic that takes no chances, won more Oscars than a Francis Ford Coppola classic. From there, we move on. 
So that was the Oscars and why Green Book won. Well, the preferable voting system may not have been everybody's first choice, but it was, uh, I think, highly ranked on enough picks, second, third, et cetera. You tally the votes, and eventually you get to be a winner like that. So congrats uh, to all those who won the Academy Awards. And, of course, during awards season, we'll be in full swing, breaking down the SAGs and the Directors Guild and Golden Globes and all the rest of it. I'd like to talk, though, about some of the films that we've seen these last four and a half months, including the best studio film, and that would be Avengers Endgame. You know, how exactly were the Russo brothers going to finish things off after the cliff hanger finale of Infinity War well they did so in very entertaining fashion yes it's a bladder bursting three hour runtime, but the final 45 minutes is worth the price of admission alone I think they were smart to focus on the biggest characters the ones who are the most popular including Iron Man and Captain America and Hulk and so on I think that um most people would find the ending to be particularly nuanced and fitting. And I did like the beautiful last shot of Captain America with that flashback, a nice love song playing, a slow dance, a real um, atypical way to end a film, which is such a big blockbuster with so much special effects. So congrats to the Russo brothers. I think fans are certainly pleased with what they got in that film. And by the way, one of the reasons why you go to see the movies is to enjoy those great moments and the crowd gets into it. And there was a real roar when I saw the film at Bowtie Cinemas in Hartford as soon as you saw Black Panther show up. So a very cool moment there. Those that know me know I love my independent films, so I want to mention my favorite indie movie of this first half of the summer season. That would be called The Mustang. It was a film that played at Sundance based on a true story about convicts who are arrested in prison who then have to train wild horses, that's right, Mustangs, as part of their rehabilitation. And if you have a love of equines, you'll certainly love this movie. Horses are beautiful creatures, and this film really expresses that, even when they're wild and untamed. And, of course, it's a metaphor for our main character, Matthias Schoenertz, who is brooding loner, is in need of being tamed and in need of redemption, one of my favorite themes. He shows a lot of vulnerability in the stories. He's trying to make amends with his past. And one particular scene that rung true to me was when convicts were asked how many seconds took place before they committed a crime that completely changed their lives. It's a very uh, powerful sequence in which they say five seconds, ten seconds, you know, not even eight seconds, where anger struck and they couldn't control their rage and something irrevocable happened and all of a sudden now they're spending the rest of their lives, 20, 30 years in prison. It's a real smart way of showing how life can change in the blink of an eye and you always have to have some empathy, I would think, for these people who are in these situations. It's unsurprising in terms of its storyline, but the Mustang packs a real emotional punch that resonates. So those are a couple of films I want to touch on. The name of the podcast is, of course, Cinephile, but we'll also talk about notable things in television right now because the lines have been blurred so much with movies and TV and so many movie stars now making projects in television. So I want to talk a little bit about Barry, season two, which wrapped up earlier this spring. You know, forget Game of Thrones and Veep, although they both ended their runs. And I did watch the last two episodes of Game of Thrones. I'd never see, I watched the first episode years ago. It wasn't my thing. I'm just not much of a Dungeons and Dragons kind of guy. So I watched the last two episodes. At least I know the dragon lived, and more importantly, Peter Dinklage, my man Tyrion Lannister, also lived. That's all I cared about. Jon Snow, enjoy Siberia. As far as Bill Hader's remarkable show, though, Barry, it's tough to imagine the second season would be even better than the first season, but that's exactly what Hader and his collaborators pull off. In case you're new to it, it's about a hitman who wants to be an actor, and it's easily bingeable. You can find it on HBO. The first season was very funny in the way it skewered showbiz satire, and both Hader and Henry Winkler won Emmys. First time ever Winkler won, and he's hysterical in the show, playing the acting teacher. He says he's drawing on acting teachers he's had in the past. 
in terms of playing the role so well. The second season, Winkler isn't featured as much, although the, his storyline is about trying to reconnect with his son. Uh, also noteworthy is Sarah Goldberg. She plays the love interest, and she's got a monologue in one episode. goes at least two minutes. Uh, there's no cuts whatsoever. It's absolutely brilliant. That scene alone, I would think, gets her an Emmy nomination. The way she delivers it, she's telling Barry how happy she is that he can get this big role, but at the same time, she's upset, she's insecure, she's frustrated. It's a real beauty. But what, speaking of beauty, the episode that I really want to speak about is episode five. It's called Ronnie Lily, and it's about a hit gone bad. It's unlike anything I've ever seen on television before. And really, the theme of Barry is about spreading death and destruction without moral consequences. And this episode, I thought, was so realistic in what he was going for in terms of hater and company. The fight scene at the beginning, you know, it ends up ending about 10 minutes into a 35-minute episode. But it's so uh, lifelike. There's no cuts at all. It feels uh, vicious and real. And eventually... The way that Hader's character emerges victorious is he breaks Ronnie, who is a martial arts champion. He breaks his windpipe. I mean, it's just this incredible fight scene. Uh, you got to see that. And then after that, he thinks he's out of the woods. And then this feral beast Todd Lily shows up, his daughter. And now the episode gets really surreal, and you're really not sure what you're watching. But the bottom line is... The show is darkly funny, and the character of Barry cannot escape his past, especially epitomized by Ron Fuchs, uh, the wonderful character actor, Stephen Root, who is so conniving and so manipulative. Uh, it's a show about anti-heroes, and even though I think it has gravitas, and in surprising ways, because you wouldn't expect Hader, who's a comedic actor, to be able to show that dramatic range, it is, as I mentioned, bleakly funny. And that episode in particular, episode five, Ronnie Lilly, is an absolute must-watch. So check out Barry season two. Also of note, Deadwood on HBO, the longest hiatus in TV history, 13 years since the third season ended, and now it's back as a one-hour, 50-minute movie. In my opinion, it was one of HBO's best shows, and the movie is a standalone film. It picks up right where it left off, which I think was smart. Rather than having to explain to viewers who are unaware of the show who each character is, they're doing the show for diehards. They're doing the show for die, uh, Deadwood fans like myself who wish that there had been more to the show. And now we get a sense of closure. Uh, there's nothing better than Ian e. McShane, the British actor, so good in Sexy Beast. He's the murderous and charismatic Al Swearingen, who is a saloon keeper. Uh, you got the prostitute Trixie, Gerald McCraney as the villain, and Timothy Oliphant as a conflicted sheriff. Uh, but aside from McShane, the real reason to watch Deadwood is creator and writer David Milch. He writes with such gutter poetry. There's a real musicality to his dialogue. It's strewn with profanity, not unlike my favorite writer, David Mamet. It's a joy to listen to in the wild Wild West, and, and by the end of Deadwood, you know, who knows if they'll ever ride again, if HBO will have these guys saddle up again, but this is better than a six-shooter, a whiskey, and a bag of gold. Deadwood, I'm giving it four Maple Leafs, just like I'm giving four Maple Leafs to Barry. In case you're new to Cinephile, that's my rating system. Being Canadian, I use Maple Leafs in which to rank things on a one-to-four scale, so I highly recommend both Barry, Deadwood, and as far as films are concerned, Avengers, Endgame, and The Mustang. We'll talk more on the next episode as far as things that I've seen, but for now, we switch gears into our next segment, which is Jim Jarmusch's film, The Dead Don't Die, in theaters Friday, June 14th, in a peaceful small town, zombies suddenly rise from their graves, terrorizing the citizens. Three bespectacled police officers and a strange Scottish mortician with a love for drag makeup and a sword fighting must band together to try and stay alive. The road to survival, however, may be a dead end. Now take a listen to Adam Driver and Chloe Sevigny, our first guests on the rebooted edition of Cinephile.
A real pleasure to be joined right now on Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast by Adam Driver and Chloe Sevigny. The movie is called The Dead Don't Die. It's in theaters this weekend, the Jim Jarmusch film. Adam, I'll start with you. Zombies and Jarmusch. This sounds like a combination you couldn't turn down. Uh, what was the biggest attraction for you? Uh, it's really hard not to repeat back. Zombies and Jarmusch. But, uh, but, but that, that's, uh, <laughs> I think that's my answer. Initially, it was you know just Jim. I would really... Uh, do anything that he was working on. It just happened to be zombies, so it was an added bonus. And Chloe, for you, this is the second time working with Jim Jarmusch. Of course, Broken Flowers as well with Bill Murray, really funny film. What's it like working with a guy like Jarmusch who is, um, I think for real movie people like us, we can appreciate just how unique his vision is? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think people like Jim have to keep making movies. And if I can, you know, be there and help add something to them and, you know, have the privilege of working alongside him and with this great cast, you know, sign me up. I'll do it for $2. Tell me when and where. I'm there. <laughs> yeah, you guys are playing cops in the film, hunting these zombies who are intent on getting some coffee and uh, whatever else they want to get their hands on. And Ronnie and Cliff, of course, the characters played by Bill Murray and by Adam. And then, Chloe, obviously, you're one of the, the cops as well. What's it like working with Bill Murray? You know, he's uh, uh, very thoughtful and very funny and very present. That's, uh, uh, I, um, that seems very uh, ambiguous, what I'm saying. Yeah, but you're like, Bill Murray's a genius. And then you're on set, and then he says, like, one word in some certain way. And you're like, yeah, duh, that's why he is. Like, he's just like, his talent is, is ever-present and constant. And you're just kind of always amazed by who he is and how genuine he is to who he is. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> no, it, absolutely. <laughs> artifice about, you know, the, the person that you, uh, like, a uh, see through interviews or hear about is, is you know there's no there's no act or stunt going on that's just what he practices that's his philosophy on life and uh, it's it, it kind of as you would imagine it would be yeah i mean listen both of you are talented actors you've had wonderful careers and this cast is amazing along with bill of course you got the likes of steve buscemi who's really funny that scene in the bar with danny glover you got tilda swinton of course uh, rosie perez chloe were you able i know obviously such a wide cast and maybe it depends on the shooting schedule by jim but were you able to to mingle much with the other actors or uh, what was the shooting schedule like yeah, there was a couple days. There was a day I had on set with Carol Kane when we're in the when they're in the police station, and I and I knew her from Trees Lounge. You know that Steve Buscemi wrote and directed, and uh, over the years I see her around New York. You know, a lot of us are New York actors, so we run into each other at other premieres and events, and um, you know, and there's like a lot of mutual admiration, or there was on this on this set. And you know, Adam and I had a day with Selena Gomez. That was kind of a, a high point. Um, except for Adam having to pull her hair over and over again. It was kind of tricky. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. 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 And Danny Glover, of course. I missed Iggy Pop. That was, like, kind of heartbreaking for me. I would have really liked to have been there. Oh, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who isn't obviously going to see the film this, uh, this weekend, The Dead Don't Die, but Iggy Pop plays a critical role. You're right. And speaking of music, actually, you know, Tom Waits, um, also Iggy Pop, just the music is kind of like a character, which often is the case in Jarmusch's films. Adam, can you speak to a little bit to the music of the film? Um, well, I haven't seen it, but I, I remember Jim talking about there's this song by Sturgill Simpson that was going to be played throughout the – that Sturgill wrote for – um, the movie that I also kind of reference, you know, there's a lot of these moments that, you know, we pull back, there's self-referential things where we're kind of acknowledging that we're making a movie, which are pretty fun. But then also he wanted the, to be playing throughout the movie in different um, 
you know, if it's in the deli, he wanted the, you know, a, a kind of like, like a, maybe a folky version of it. If it's in the, if we're in a laundromat, it, you know, it's a, exactly. a, a, yeah, switching the genres of how it's played, but kind of keeping it throughout the movie. That's, they are, they are releasing it as a CD single. Sorry. Oh, oh they don't know. Please. Yes, yes. And then at the end, there's like that dark, the tonal shift in the movie, and there's all that beautiful, like, um, reverby tonal music actually jim had written that with our producer carter oh yeah their band the score yeah the score as far as chloe going in in terms of research or like zombie films in general did did i mean listen there's homages to night of the living dead of course the romero film other stuff like that did jim encourage you or any of the members of the cast to watch that stuff or was it just here's what's on the page interpret it how you like it was more what's on the page, you know, and, and, and he really kind of sticks to what's on the page. Like, you go in, you even read, like, he reads in between the lines, you know, the action when you're kind of, like, you know, blocking, and, and there's certain, you know, glances or what. I think he's, he gets pretty married to the ideas in the script, but then he also lets you, like, riff a bit. So it's a little bit of both. Yeah. What was it, what was it like for both of you? What was it like being at the Cannes Film Festival? Good. Good. I, 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 the first time I went, and let me explain why. The first time I went was with Jim, actually, for Patterson, and then, uh, um, then again with Spike and and Terry Gilliam, and so to be back there with Jim a couple years later, it was just, uh, I, you know, I love that festival. I always love the movies that go there. Uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, it feels like. Um, you know, walking up the steps, you're like, yes, movies are, you know, this important, but it also seems kind of outsized. Um, um, it, it's, you know, it's good. I like that festival. Yeah, I love the festival. I think it's a great platform, especially for like, uh, you know, um, other countries, being that they like, you know, there's so few English language films, and I think that America always dominates in cinema, and it's nice that other, you know, countries and nationalities get attention for their films and also feels like a real sense of community and you get to see other actors and meet other directors and like everything's so contained within like you know the area on the quasette and the parties and stuff that it really feels like a, a nice sense of community which i mean we live in new york we don't get that so much like hollywood and it's also personal to jim that yeah festival because they've allowed him to kind of you know it's it, he's made it kind of part of how his movies are released and how they're bought in the United States, it kind of always gets this kind of first premiere at that festival. So, you know, with him in particular, because it's so meaningful, it just adds another layer. The Dead Don't Die is the film. It's going to be in theaters this week. We're talking with Adam Driver and Chloe Seventy right now on Cinephile. I want to touch on some of your other work because both of you guys have had such excellent careers. Adam, I thought Silence was the best film of 2016. I adore Scorsese as so many others, and you as Father Garupe. I mean, you lost 51 pounds for the role. I mean, just you look like a shell of yourself. You're so gaunt, and yet the film I thought was so spiritual and so powerful, and I wish it had a cast a wider audience, but I do think over the years people will recognize uh, how brilliant that film was. What can you tell me about Scorsese and that film in particular? Yeah, his movies are just always um, ahead of where uh, uh, you know where where everybody else is. I feel, and yeah, I I agree with you. I feel like uh, that movie was really difficult to work on because of obviously all the the weight loss and uh, subject matter. But I, I was always he um, is someone who you know again is a master of his craft, but always shows up. Uh, 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 leaving space for not knowing, you, you know, he he had been that movie and has been going over his mind for 30 years, and he definitely, you know, did shots that he had been thinking about for 
30 years, but there's always the beginning of the day starts with him being on set alone in the moment, trying to figure it out. He's kind of designed, he has a work ethic where he's made it. So he's painted himself into a corner and he has to come up with an answer, you know, in the moments. And, and I feel like that kind of, um, energy of, uh, you know, of improv, but at the same time, knowing your sub, knowing what the movie you're make, uh, knowing the movie you're making so incredibly well, that kind of, you know, heavily researched, but also improv makes its way into his movies. It's there. They always feel urgent and, uh, coming from a personal place and, and always, um, farther uh, ahead of probably where most of the audience is ready to go. Like a lot of his movies, yeah, are like and that. I think you're absolutely. How is it that you know After Hours wasn't as you know celebrated probably or was or, or King of Comedy? And you know it takes it took it took a couple of years for people to really you know uh, and repeat viewing. Sandra Bernhardt and King of Comedy is probably one of my favorite you know female performances of the ministry. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, she's unbelievable, Chloe. To that point, that that scene where she's uh, like, you know, duct taped Jerry Lewis, and the way she's just like, uh, uh, <laughs> seducing him—it's incredible, right? Yeah, yeah. She yeah. when she sings, I mean, obviously she does. You know, she does cabaret now, but yeah, that that voice, yeah, slays me, slays me. Amazing, Chloe. Uh, there's a book, and I haven't read it yet, but it talks about 1999 might be the best year ever for movies. And of course, you're part of an incredible film and your work with Hilary Swank and the whole crew with Boys Don't Cry. What reminiscences do you have of that film, which uh, seems even more topical now, the 20th anniversary? Um, I don't know. I mean that that film was like, yeah, a really powerful experience, and you know, um, it was you know. I hate the word blessed, but, you know, blessed to be a part of it and telling that story. It's a really important story. I think about Brandon and Tina and, um, a lot and, um, and a lot of people come up to me, you know, almost like every day saying what that movie meant to them and how it shifted perspective and, you know, people's perspectives and, and, and yeah, I mean, what more could you ask for, you know, so. Yeah, you take so much from a film that's resonant, and Adam, you know that, especially you touched on Black Klansman and working with Spike Lee. Of course, you were nominated for an Academy Award. Spike finally wins the Oscar for original screenplay. I mean, I, <laughs> I feel like everyone's a Spike Lee fan on some level. There's a film that connects you to him, but for yourself personally, um, how gratifying was it to see a, a real master of cinema being rewarded on Oscar night? Yeah, it's hard to articulate things like that. They're, they mostly, it's just a, an amazing feeling or sensation. You know, it's not only just as a fan of his movies, but how he conducts um, himself on set and his family and who he, you know, how he is with everybody that's uh, in his world. He's such a champion of other filmmakers. You know, he's a tenured professor at, at, uh, and when at NYU, he doesn't, uh, like I've, seen him in elevators, you know, recognizing one of his students saying, you know, you've been sitting at the back of the class. You have to move to the front tomorrow. I want to see you up there. You know, he's just a, uh, so to be there, you know, at that night at that moment, you know, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty special that, I, you know, I haven't, it, it's hard to articulate, but it was meaningful. I, I can totally appreciate that. Last one for you, Adam, in terms of Star Wars, I'm sure you've talked about it ad nauseum, but just give me one anecdote, just how it changed your life. I mean, listen, you're a hardworking actor. You're looking at different roles, and you're part of this just gigantic, gargantuan film. But what has that experience been like? I know it's hard to maybe, as you said, articulate it in a short form, but, I mean, Star Wars, man, it doesn't get bigger than that. 
No, I mean, I, I guess I can. Yeah, that's a hard thing to articulate also. Uh, but I, I will, I guess, uh, try to cherry pick something. Uh, I guess the scale is like a biggest thing that I've, you know, I'm used to before then work on things where like, you know, could you save that cigarette because we're going to need to use it throughout the movie for, you know, the next three months. And just suddenly, not that people are smoking in Star Wars, but uh, kind of had a lot of, of things at your disposal to kind of make it easier. But at, at the same time, because the scale is so big, you it just makes the way you work on it, uh, you know, uh, that different because there's so much time. The turnarounds are so long or there's a, a visual effect thing that you don't uh, know is going on behind you. There's uh, um, a, a lot of moving pieces. So it, so it just, it was a, a really um, good experience to take you outside of your comfort zone in every way. And also just being on like that, that scale. And I, I'll probably never get that experience again, where it's not a, a CGI village. They actually built the village, you know, that's uh, it, it, in every way it could, uh, it's unique and, and has affected, um, I'm just repeating back to you what you just said, but yeah, it's changed, it changed my life. Yeah, I was going to say credit to both of you for always taking chances and to make films that can be massive, big budget like that, but also make a smart, funny, independent film like The Dead Don't Die from a real auteur in Jim Jarmusch. Adam Driver, Chloe Seventy, thank you so much to both of you for the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck with the film. Thank, thank you very much. All right, so thanks once again to Adam Driver and Chloe Seventy. So terrific to join us here on the podcast. Appreciate their thoughts, not only on The Dead Don't Die, but also some of their other work. We now segue to a segment we'll be doing here on Cinephile, which is called Mount Rushmore. So this could be an actor showcase, as we've done in the past on Cinephile, you know, the top five films of Tom Hanks, et cetera. But we're making it even tougher now by going with the Mount Rushmore. You can only pick four. So the category this week is Mount Rushmore of Sports Films, a very difficult category. And, of course, I make my living as a sportscaster. I do a baseball show called Change Up on DAZN. I'll also be appearing on MLB Network, NHL Network, et cetera. I uh, work on the boxing as well. So uh, as a sports fan, this is a topic that really is close to my heart. First off, the honorable mention of The Wrestler, Darren Aronofsky's bleak look at the lives of faded wrestlers uh, with a real sense of verisimilitude. Mickey Rourke and his comeback performance looks absolutely haunted and never takes a misstep in the lead role, which you feel like has uh, a real element of tragedy in terms of his real life as well. Did not win the Oscar, sadly. Lost to Sean Penn, who won for Milk, but I thought Rourke and Aronofsky really made a one-two combo. As far as the four films to mention... I'm going to go with Eight Men Out. John Sales' story about Innocence Lost. It was my favorite baseball film. It's about the 1919 Black Sox. Lots of actual baseball in the film, which is nice, because sometimes uh, some of these baseball movies don't feature a lot of baseball, but Sales structures it so he sees the series from Game 1 to Game 9 in terms of the World Series. A superb young cast, including guys like Charlie Sheen, uh, John Cusack playing Buck Weaver. I love David Strathairn as Eddie Seacott. He's so morally compromised. And, of course, you get a veteran actor as John Mahoney, the late John Mahoney, playing the manager as well. Terrific baseball movie. I love that movie a lot. Also, Hoop Dreams, Steve James's groundbreaking documentary. It's about Arthur Agee and William Gates, two guys who dream of playing in the NBA Chicago Prodigies. But it's about more than basketball. It's about life in the projects and how despairing it can be and really the importance and the salvation of sports. It really was a tentpole film because 
people were appalled that it was not nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, Cisco Lieber in particular championed that film. They loved Hoop Dreams. came out back in 1994. It's a great doc. It's one of my favorite sports films. Also, Million Dollar Baby. Not only a great sports film, but of course a great film overall. It's eloquently downbeat. It's the only film in which you'll ever see Clint Eastwood cry. Maggie played perfectly by Hilary Swank as a female boxer known to the fans as Makushla, my darling, my blood. In this tale, Clint Eastwood lifts your heart and then he breaks it. Superb supporting turn by Morgan Freeman as well. Love the musical score as well by Clint Eastwood, who often does compose the music for his own films. And number one for me is Raging Bull. It's not only just about the battles inside the ring, but those that Jake LaMotta fights outside of it. It's bloody and beautiful, and it's epitomized by that steady camp shot of LaMotta entering the ring. How about the shadow boxing, the opening credits set to Mascani? You know, in Scorsese's world, the camera acts as an x-ray. He really goes into the souls and lives of his characters, and I love the perfect casting. Joe Pesci is the brother, who not only adds heart, but also humor. Kathy Moriarty is the ingenue. Frank Vincent, who would become a Scorsese regular as one of the heavies. And how about the ending of the film? It's Robert De Niro, an actor playing a boxer, Jake LaMotta, echoing Marlon Brando, an actor playing a boxer, Terry Malloy, on the waterfront. And the, the film, which is about a character who is so despicable and so dislikable, and yet there's empathy, yet there's a note of redemption. As Steven Spielberg, a close friend of Scorsese, once said, at the end of the film, LaMotta's a fat failure, but he's accepted it. So give me a stage where this bull here can rage, and though I can fight, I'd much rather recite. That's entertainment. That's entertainment. Mount Rushmore Sports Films, Raging Bull, Eight Men Out, Hoop Dreams, and Million Dollar Baby with an honorable mention to The Wrestler. And now we segue over to The Sopranos. That's right. What we're going to be doing here in Cinephiles, looking back at some classic shows. And in fact, just this week, it was a 12-year anniversary on June 10th of The Sopranos finale back in 2007. Think back to where you were. You thought the cable went out. All of a sudden, the screen went black. At the time, it was an ending that was reviled. And I myself must have been. I hated the ending at the time. I thought it was a cop-out by David Chase. I thought he wasn't clear-cut enough in what happens to Tony. But over time, I've changed my view, and I do think in many ways uh, the ending is open to interpretation, and all great works of art allow us to be that. Uh, particularly for this section, in which we'll be talking about Sopranos episodes a few at a time here on Cinephile, we'll be using as a resource the Sopranos Sessions, which is a tremendous book by Matt Zoller-Seitz and Alan Sepinwall. I talked to them previously on Cinephile, and uh, we'll definitely use some observations from their books. But... When you go back to The Sopranos, and I rewatched the entire series this past fall because the 20th anniversary was January 10th of this season. That's right, debuted back in 1999, and the show description was this from writer-director David Chase. Tony Soprano, a capo in the DeMeo crime family, begins therapy with Dr. Jennifer Melfi after having anxiety attacks. His mother, Livia, refuses to move to a nursing home. Tony's uncle, Junior, wants to use Tony's friend's restaurant as a location for a murder, but Tony prevents this by having the restaurant blown up. Christopher Moltisante, Tony's nephew, murders the representative of a Czech mob that was trying to move in on the family waste management company. The first episode, you know, it's funny when you go back and watch it now, you think, well, what was first, the chicken or the egg? What was first, the Sopranos or Analyze This? Well, the Sopranos came out in January, Analyze This was in March, but I'm sure they were both in production around the same time. One is a really funny comedy with Robert De Niro and Billy Crystal, and one is a serious drama which has a lot of comedy in it, and that is Chase's story. I think you begin with the Sopranos, you talk about the casting and how important Jimmy Gandolfini was to the role. This was a guy who'd been a character actor in the past. When you watch it now, you see how young he was. Uh, he wasn't nearly as big in terms of girth, still had some hair, uh, but was a guy who'd been a bit part in films like True Romance and others, but he really just nails the role of Tony Soprano, and you get that sense of it right away. And it's so important, the scenes with Dr. Melfi, 
because this is basically a gangster echoing his inner monologue. And it's many ways, if you think about classic literature, this is like the Greek chorus. This is him, you know, turning to the audience and saying his real thoughts. This is Iago turning to the audience and saying, okay, here's how I'm going to turn Othello against himself. And not only is he great, but so is Dr. Jennifer Melfi, played by Lorraine Bracco, who was really smart when David Chase was trying to cast the role, said, listen, why would I play the wife? I've already done that. I played Karen Hill, of course, Henry Hill's wife, in Goodfellas, let me try something different. And she's got that real sense of not only, I think, sexiness with the, uh, the bookish glasses and such and the way that she can be charming to Tony, but also she's really smart. And in this case, he's attracted to her smartness and her empathy, the fact that she feels for him, even though he is such a character with so many flaws, and yet he's searching for redemption. So it's interesting that Chase did not want to be Goodfellas, a TV show, and yet couldn't help himself in certain ways. Michael Imperioli plays Christopher Moltisanti, who's so good as Spider in Goodfellas, and Harry plays the hot-headed nephew, Christopher, who unfortunately has an addiction to drugs, which will sometimes waylay him. Soprano's first episode shows Tony talking about his dream and why ducks are so important, the ducks that come by the pool. You got a really famous funny line from <laughs> Anthony Jr. talking about no ZD, became one of the show's most famous lines. And the first episode really showed why HBO had said, it's not TV, it's HBO. Sounds like a self-indulgent way to announce the arrival of a show, but really it was, um, I think, par for the course the way HBO's shows were. In terms of plot recap, the first couple episodes, also there was 46 long, the second episode where Christopher and Brendan Fallone begin hijacking trucks when they find the owner of the trucks paying Junior for protection. Their drug addictions prevent them from respecting Junior's orders to stop. A note on Junior, of course, that's Dominic Cianese, who's a great singer, owns a great restaurant, by the way, in New York City as well, playing Junior, a character who was one of my favorites, so funny and so smart. Uh, episode three is Denial, Anger, Acceptance. The Sopranos hiring the Bucos to cater to a dinner party. Tony's daughter, Meadow, played by Jamie Lynn Sigler, asking Christopher and Brendan for speed to help stay awake for SAT preparation. The real storyline that I like from this episode, though, is Tony accepting the task of securing a divorce for a Hasidic Jew's daughter, realizing that these Hasidic Jews, in some ways, have the same issues that this Italian-American gangster family does. There's certain codes that they're adhering to. And by the way, speaking of Goodfellas, who's the guy playing the main Hasidic Jew? That's right. Maury's wigs never come off, one of the great characters of Goodfellas. By the way, Junior also unleashes retribution upon Christopher and Brendan for their truck hijacking. So you can already see the elements of the family struggle and that power struggle between Tony and his uncle Junior, who is a guy who is not to be messed with and not to be trifled with. Those are the first few episodes of The Sopranos. We'll talk more about episode by episode, do a deep dive in there. But like I said, 12-year anniversary, June 10th, 2007, was The Sopranos finale. We can all remember where we were then. And lastly, I'd like to close with a requiem here for Entertainment Weekly. It's now going to become a monthly publication. I'll read the following here from the New York Post. It was rumored for years on Thursday, this is last week, finally became a reality. Meredith said Entertainment Weekly magazine will publish its last weekly issue on June 25th and become a monthly as of August. J.D. Heyman, deputy editor of People, will replace Henry Goldblatt's editor. About 15 people will be cut as a result of the change. Bruce Gersh said the cutback in print will be accompanied by deeper 24-7 digital coverage. EW will still produce weekly digital covers and push into podcasts and plans events and experiential offerings with stars and festivals. The previous owner, Time Inc., spent $150 million developing EW after its February 1990 launch, was rewarded for its patience when the magazine made a six-figure profit at the end of 96, and its peak years was cranking out $55 million in annual profit. Though still profitable of late, it was squeezed in recent years as celebrities 
celebrity coverage exploded across all platforms and print advertising shrank. While still called a weekly, it was recently publishing only 34 issues a year. Meredith considered selling the title along with several others after it completed its $2.8 billion acquisition of Time Inc., but was convinced to keep EW in part because it was so intertwined with top moneymaker people. The company says it expects the move to monthly will increase EW profits since it cuts production costs while keeping the same circulation and subscription price. But it plans to hike the newsstand price by a dollar to $6.99. There's the business of the business we all work in. But honestly, I just want to say a big thank you to all the people at Entertainment Weekly because in so many ways, they inform my own film education. Owen Gleiberman who I got to meet for lunch a couple of years ago. He's a phenomenal guy, great film critic. He's been a guest on Cinephile. Lisa Schwartzbaum, Ty Burr, who's a previous guest on Cinephile. I mean, those three, I would read their reviews and devour them, and it would in many ways, as I said, shape what I felt about films and it helped my, my film understanding. I'm just so grateful to them and their writing. Ken Tucker, the TV critic, he championed the Larry Sanders show, which is my favorite show. Um, and in terms of just when I first started reading it, it was Jay Leno was on the cover back in 1992 after Arsenio Hall said he was going to kick his ass. That's right. Going all the way back to 92 is when I first started reading EW. Still subscribe to it now. And my favorite issue I just wanted to mention is the top directors of all time. I still have it. You know, now it's fashionable to get rid of everything that's print. Why would you need it? It's all online. But I still have that issue. It's so great. They rank all the great directors of all time. Alfred, I can remember it by memory. Alfred Hitchcock is one. Orson Welles is two. John Ford is three. Howard Hawks is four. And, of course, my favorite, Martin Scorsese, is fifth. Spielberg came in at ninth. Federico Fellini, one of my favorites, was ten. Uh, Kurosawa is obviously in the mix. But I'll never forget what they said about Scorsese and the fact that his films always impact some of his personal life into the film and there's a quote from Marty in which he says I splatter bits of myself all over the screen and then the EW writer wrote we're still ducking it was such a good line and uh, honestly I just hope Entertainment Weekly continues uh, now it's a monthly uh, publication I hope it's extremely successful in that fashion and I believe EW is hooked up with uh, Cadence 13 and my producer Joe used to work at EW so he's got some friends there as well so hopefully we'll be able to collaborate and get some things done because it's been a great publication and I appreciate all of you for listening to this revamped episode of Cinephile on the next podcast we're now going to be weekly just so you know so Entertainment Weekly is going monthly before at ESPN Cinephile was every other week now we're going to be weekly cranking out these episodes so once again subscribe rate review my thanks to Adam Driver and Chloe 70 for stopping by and on the next podcast I'll talk about the new film Aladdin Guy Ritchie's reboot currently in theaters and I'll also want to do a deep dive into the TV show called Rami currently available on Hulu it's one of the best new shows I've seen in a long time until then this is Adnan Burke I'll see you at the movies Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. 
Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.